the men would try to do a, a circuit uh, somewhere on the, on the floor of the unit uh, using like a towel to, someone to hold towel and you know, use like bicep curls or using the top of a cell door to do pull-ups. And I got my nerve up after about four to five days there and I said, I'm gonna jump into that group. And I started doing some core work at some of those stations and almost immediately men came up to me and said, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm uh, working <laughs> out. <laughs> And then very quickly, they said, well, that looks pretty cool. Could you train us? And so that started the, 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 the genesis of a yoga program within that facility. Hello, and welcome to the Happy You're Here podcast. In this show, we talk about tools, techniques, and ideas to help us live more fulfilling and connected lives. In this episode, we have Mike Huggins, who is the founder of Transformation Yoga and also a two-time author and a consultant for executives or anyone dealing with significant life challenges, which is a lot of people. So I hope you're uh, doing well with that. The first question that we like to ask in this show, and we'll get into your story because I think your story is is, is fascinating um, and helpful, I think, for a lot of people. But the first question is, is there a tool or technique that has been useful for you and maybe central in your life to building a more fulfilling life? Yeah, yes, for sure. Um, what, what I would say, Craig, first of all, thanks for having me on the of show. Of course. I appreciate, appreciate you uh, uh, being able to talk with you. Yeah, I'd say the first thing is kind of a top level thing, and I can get into the techniques. Uh, but for me, it's, it's about, all about gratitude. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, gratitude is everything we talk about, or people say attitude is everything, but in order to get to attitude is everything, I think you need some gratitude for first. So for me, having a sense of gratitude um, is, is essential for uh, navigating all the challenges that we face, you know, individually, but community and society, and we know the, the things going on around the world. Uh, so that, I would say that's the overlying over, uh, aspect of it. But within that, uh, there's many techniques of doing that. My personal technique uh, is, is been through yoga. It's, it's mm-hmm. making that mind-body connection so that we can look at things holistically, but with our mind and our body together. And I think that's uh, a place where there, at least for me, that's where I can find a sense of gratitude or putting things into perspective when uh, I'm dealing with some, some challenges. I think it's interesting how mindfulness and gratitude, there's so many different variations of mindfulness practice, obviously, yoga being one of them, and gratitude always end up becoming intermixed, you know? Yeah. It's it's kind of impossible not to feel a sense of gratitude when you start to really look at things as they are, uh, even when they're difficult. Yeah, I mean, look, the definition of mindfulness, I think the, the common accepted definition is mindfulness is uh, paying attention to what's happening now uh, without any judgment. And um, and so if we're aware of what's happening now without any judgment, um, it's it makes it it makes us aware of, oh, this is not bad. I'm happy to be here right now speaking with Craig. This is a, <laughs> this is a really wonderful thing. And I don't have to worry so much about what else is uh, going on right now, because I'm going to have this time and enjoy uh, conversation with you. And I think that helps provide some perspective in uh, dealing with other other things going on all around us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, through the work that you're doing with Transformation Yoga and some of your books and and all of your work, really, it seems like you're really helping other people connect with that sense of gratitude, that sense of presence, right? Uh, And and all of those things. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Transformation Yoga to start with? Sure. So Transformation Yoga Project, we're obviously a nonprofit, and we were formed 
um, back in 2012, and there's a backstory I'm sure we'll get into about that, but we were formed uh, as a trauma-oriented uh, organization serving people who are dealing with significant trauma, whether it's through substance abuse or recovery, whether it's through being trapped within the cr criminal justice system, whether it's being uh, incarcerated. And we do that through uh, a trauma lens, if you will, um, of yoga and mindfulness. Uh, and we've had really wonderful success. And the only thing I'd add to that, uh, because I've had a lot of experience in the business world and actually in the healthcare uh, world, is that all should be supported by education and research. So I like to say that we are bridging this sort of new age philosophy that's, that's been around you know, thousands of years, but science has caught up to it. So now we can have a conversation that talks about how and why this works, which uh, it, it can be very powerful for those who might be um, hesitant to try anything that's kind of woo-woo-ish, if you will. Because <laughs> uh, I don't view it that way at all, but some people yeah. do. And I think we can, if we can talk about the science behind it, uh, I think that is something that people can, um, some people can relate better to. Let's let's go ahead and dive into the the background story yeah. for Transformation Yoga Project because I think that's you know a powerful point of connection for people. And you, it started because you were actually in the criminal justice system. I was. So there, there was this. Um, I would say three major life events occurred mm -hmm. almost simultaneously that that changed the, the directory of my life trajectory of my life and the first thing was I was a uh, senior level executive in a very large company I was, I was managing I was a COO a chief operating officer of a two billion dollar medical device company really profitable really well um, had, a, had a wonderful reputation and really did a wonderful work to help people um, but along the way I started to, to not I started losing some of my passion of, of why I was doing it because I, as the company got bigger, I was doing more administrative work. I was less involved with customers, with patients, with our, our uh, employees who were making the product. So I was sort of feeling a little bit unrestful there. That's sort of one, one thing. And, and um, what happened then is I developed chronic back problems. I now know those chronic back problems were stress-related, but at the time, working mm. for a company that made spinal implants, <laughs> uh, I was getting great advice about which spine surgery I had to see. I'm like, I don't, I'm not sure I want to get surgery. So that's another piece. And um, also, the FDA came in. They received a complaint that one of our products was being uh, promoted off-label, mm. which, if you know the pharmaceutical world, that happens quite a bit, and it's illegal. You're not allowed to promote your product for something that, that's not approved for by the FDA or cleared for by the FDA. Now, I was a COO and, and what they, um, the complaint was for two divisions below. So I didn't know what was going on. And then finally, I was feeling like I had some unrest in my personal life. Um, so I started, all these things are coming together. So someone recommended I try yoga. Uh, and I went to a yoga class and it that first class, I was changed in some way, not because my back problems went away immediately, but I felt a sense of release, a sense of um, stress reduction, just calmness. Mm -hmm. So that was in 2004, and I've been practicing, consistently practicing yoga since, since 2004. Now, with that, the FDA investigation kept going and going and going, uh, and ultimately I became a target. Uh, of this investigate myself and three other executives and ultimately I was charged with a misdemeanor for something that's called a responsible corporate officer and what that is quite simply it means that 
something happened under my watch, which I do believe there was off-label promotion that happened, but I didn't do anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do anything to stop it because I didn't know about it. Right. Um, but, but lack of knowledge is not an excuse in the eyes of the law. And of course, there was no financial gain. There was none of that other stuff that you would think about, kind of corporate greed, if you will. But, but the long story short is myself and the three others, we, were in, we ended up being sentenced to prison for, I ended up in a nine-month prison sentence. But that time took a long time to happen. Uh, between the investigation in 2004, I wasn't sentenced until 2011. Okay, so in between then, I took another job as a CEO of another company. And in 2009, I ultimately was indicted. So mm. I had to quit that job. But I still had this yoga practice that I was uh, hanging my hat on to. And I decided that the universe is saying, this is an opportunity, Mike, to explore yoga in a deeper way than I wouldn't otherwise have done. So uh, while I was in this kind of purgatory period waiting to be sentenced, um, I went to a Buddhist monastery, spent some time there. Um, I went deep into yoga, meditation, um, understanding more about trauma, became a, a yoga instructor, went through the 200-hour yoga alliance programs, and then ultimately started teaching yoga. Um, interestingly, at the same place where I first started, which I was teaching now to a lot of my former employees, which is who used to report to me now on their yoga teacher, which is an interesting um, a social dynamic to go, yeah. go on there, how people work with each other. But beside that, I also then started a couple outreach programs with the Police Athletic League to, to, to work with yoga for at-risk kids. All that was happening, and then right in the middle of that, I got sentenced to prison, and then that just changed everything. Um, so I ended up going to a, a um, federal detention center, which is not a really a pleasant place. It's not a, not a club fed. It's not a minimum security prison. It's for really high-profile men in, who have been accused, uh, accused of serious crime. So I was there for five weeks. And I just, for my own sanity, started practicing yoga. Um, I didn't really call it yoga then. I called it more like a workout um, mm. because there's no exercise equipment there. And pe- the men would try to do a, a circuit uh, somewhere on the, on the floor of the unit uh, using like a towel to, someone to hold a towel and you know, use like bicep curls or using the top of a cell door to do pull-ups. And I got my nerve up after about four to five days there. And I said, I'm going to jump into that group. And I started doing some core work at some of those stations. And almost immediately, men came up to me and said, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm uh, working (laughs) out. (laughs) Um, And then very quickly, they said, well, that looks pretty cool. Could you train us? And so that started the, 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 the genesis of a yoga program within that facility. And then very quickly, it morphed into a more traditional kind of yoga, meaning that we did breathing, a physical movement. We did a, a guided meditation, guided relaxation, and then ultimately morphed into discussion groups of things. So it really just was an amazing experience there. Not only did it allow me to sort of survive uh, in that environment, but right. also um, I think provided some tools for those men and it opened up my eyes about this, this idea of this alternate society we have called the society of mass incarceration particularly with men of color i mean it just was a whole experience there ultimately i was transferred to another prison where i started which was a a more of a regular prison a minimum Mm. security prison where i had more flexibility and freedom and did the same thing there what was it like initially there you like you said you kind of hid behind the idea of it being a workout which it is you know yeah um 
I've I've kind of wondered that when I've I've heard your story before. How hard was that, or easy was that for those other inmates to latch onto the idea? Uh, even when like, what did that look like? That transition to like saying, okay, this is yoga, and like, there's all of this other yeah, pieces. That, like, was that yeah, hard for them to dip, dive into? Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, if I can digress for maybe one minute to get to that. Yeah. So as I was taken away, I was actually taken from the courthouse in shackles, which is kind of unheard of for a nonviolent misdemeanor <laughs> offense. Yeah. But um, and so I was taken to the holding cell and I was early on in the morning and I was by myself. Men started coming in, mainly men of color started coming in because they were there for court appearances. They were a witness or their own case. And I'm sitting there and watching these men come in and they were having conversations like that I would have if I was at a business conference. Hey, Joe, where you been? Oh, I got transferred to the fourth floor. What are you doing now? I'm working in the mess hall. Or, you know, just, hey, how's your family doing? Yeah. A similar conversation. Um, and I'm like, holy cow, you know, this is a whole society here of these men that have the same wanting of a connection. Um, but they're, you know, and just like me, hey, Joe, how you been? Oh, how's your new job doing? How's your family going? How's that product release going? Same conversation, but the difference is they're not going home, you know, at least right. in the business world. So that really stuck with me that we all have this common connection about of wanting some kind of connection and wanting to be uh, part of a community. So t I had that in my back of my mind uh, as I started, you know, to go into that situation. Um, and what I also realized is that that contrary to what we see a lot in the media, the vast majority of the men that I came in contact with truly wanted to better themselves. There's no question about that. Um, and so anytime they had an opportunity to learn, whether it's to learn maybe yoga or maybe somebody who had uh, a lot of, in, in, a lot of um, experience and knowledge about the stock market or about events, any way that they could learn, these men were really, were really drawn to that. And so over time, these, this yoga core power yoga, if you want to call it something at that point, mm -hmm. um, that was more of an exercise. But over time, we got to know each other. And then there was this idea of a, a bit of trust that was uh, uh, formulated. And you have to have some type of trust in order for, for there to be any kind of healing or real work done. So if, right. if you don't feel safe or if you don't feel that you can trust or, or be vulnerable, then that's, um, that's a bit of a problem. So over time, we established that relationship where the men felt safe um, and it's really hard to feel safe in an unsafe environment. And that's another whole discussion. Um, but we started to have those discussions. And the way I sold it originally was, look, I know everybody thinks women do, do this. And most women, it, it's probably 80% at that time of, of women, you know, yoga practices in the U.S. were women. But virtually every major uh, professional team, particularly in football, and a lot of college teams have brought in yoga um, to do that. I also taught yoga for kids who were in a boxing program to help them with their uh, calming themselves down and all that. So it wasn't as hard as you might think. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an approach. And, and then, of course, once they understood what we were trying to do, we were able to evolve beyond just the physical aspect of it, get into more of the, the, spirit, the spiritual, yeah, for sure, the, but the mind-body piece of it, of how to take this yoga practice and we like, use the cliche to take it off the mat how to use this practice yeah. when you're in the mess hall or if, or if a co is getting uh giving you a lot of grief or something like that though that's really where the power was and i think eventually they they came to appreciate that and and how now i mean you can go 
a little bit back into how sure. that transitioned into Transformation Yoga Project. I'm also curious how that informs that experience informs the way that you are interacting with uh, people that are in correctional facilities in the uh, the, the prison complex, uh, if you will, yeah. and how you're you're connecting with those people and making you know them feel safe enough to be able to be a little bit vulnerable. So so that experience, what I would tell you. Um, I, was literally life-changing for me and just seeing things and experiencing things that we we all know or, or hear about you know we do hear about racism we do hear about the trauma we do hear about all these things about this uh, dual thinking um but for many of us me particularly having before that experience i knew intellectually i knew all that stuff right but to see it practically speaking, is very different. To see, for example, to see cell assignments are really important and because you have to trust your, your cellmate. If you yeah. don't, then there's a lot of problems that could happen. Um, they could set you up. They could put contraband in your, your bunk, hide something. It's just a really important aspect of that. That's one. Visitation. Visitations are everything, you know, when you go see your family. Um, so job assignments when i moved to the minimum security prison job assignments were really important all those kinds of things there was i saw clearly lots of discrimination there in, in how well let's talk about bunk assignments mm. when i was in the minimum security prison once i got there i wanted to change to another bunk there was three people in a in a area there and i wanted to be in one with two basically it was overcrowded so I, I found somebody um, and I went to the, the sergeant, the correctional officer, and it was really no problem. I was able to switch and that was worked out great for me. Exact same situation I saw from men of color, probably 70% of the time they were not allowed to do that change. It's the exact same request. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't you let that, that change? That's one. Visitation. Visitation is really everything. It's, it's, it's what you hang and you look forward for. And that connection with the outside world. And I was very fortunate because I had a very strong network outside. I had a very short sentence. Um, and after the first few times, I would, you know, this classic strip search, you know, bend down, cough, spread your cheeks, all that stuff. Yeah. Very, very um, dehumanizing. And what I saw, particularly in the minimum security prison, was that once I got through that maybe once, it never had happened again. The men of color, every time, almost every time there was a visitation, there was um, a different set of rules applied to them. And so it was more humiliating. Or they might have to wait longer to, in the hallway waiting to get in to see their family. Uh, job assignments. I got a great job at, I mean, theoretically a great, great job because I was, became a tutor for pre-GED students, which was a good fit for me. So I got anybody who didn't have their GED um, and couldn't, uh, wasn't ready for the GED program, I worked with them. And so that worked out really well for me. But a lot of the guys, they ended up going on what we call the slave buses, and they were shipped out of the prison to work in uh, a factory where they were recycling old cell phones and television sets. Um, and kind of de and uh, lots of bad things happened there. They, the the the, um, the squad would the uh, not the squad the uh, uh, SWAT team would practice on these slave buses for real events. So they'd come in while the bus is coming back from the factory to the prison, guns drawn to practice. You know on these on these group of men, uh, ninety some percent Same. were men of color. So there's these these things that add up, and yeah, it's like that's traumatic. That's... They're more than more than just coincidence. It's like saying. Yeah. This really, this is what goes on, and and when we were, and we start to see that, and then 
it's easy to uh, project that into what's happening outside those prison walls. What's happening right now, in fact, is uh, a good reflection of that, I think. It's really, you know, it's, it's frustrating to hear that. <laughs> um, and experientially, I have a lot of friends that have been in and out of the criminal justice system. Um, I'm a recovering addict, so I know a lot of people that have, have gotten caught up in that system. I'm grateful that I haven't, but it's the likelihood of, of someone of color getting caught up in that. And then their experience, like to your point, I honestly have never really thought about that, how their experience then is even different, just beyond the more, them being more likely to be arrested for the same exact crime or do prison time for the same. I've seen people get ex- arrested for the same exact crime. And someone that is is white uh, doesn't get that gets a fine gets some probation time and someone of color that had this literally the same exact sentence ends up in prison for a year or more like that's it's frustrating because if i feel relatively powerless to do anything about it but i mean i guess the first step is just being aware of that that's a real thing that's happening at yeah, a pretty large sure. scale you know yeah for sure and, and i think to, to um, go back to your other question, um, so that process was pretty eye-opening, and and um, of course, I maintain <clears throat> very consistent yoga practice, and it just sort of morphed into multiple multiple programs, and <clears throat> we got into these topics. Excuse me, mm-hmm. um, about the um, about discrimination, about that the life isn't fair. Yeah. Um, so how do we make the best of the situation knowing that maybe you got a bad deal or maybe you got a good deal, you know, right. um, whatever. <clears throat> and um, I think we had some success in uh, men kind of coming to grips with that. And, you know, there's that classic um, chart, I guess, that shows of all the layers of men. You know, we talk about men, male toxic masculinity. Um, there's a lot of that in prison, but when you start to look at these ideas, like let's say we start up here with like things like <clears throat> violence, you strip that away. There's anger, you strip that away. There's frustration, um, you strip that away. There's a sense that they're, um, uh, they're shame, uh, particularly with men and what they've done with their families, um, and their kids that are out there. Um, and then behind that, there's, they just feel like they're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the, the nice thing about a yoga practice is it can help us to, to melt some of those layers away so we can get to the core issues and um, ha- have men reconnect with, with who they truly are before uh, life got in the way, before they got into maybe, maybe made bad decisions or, or were put in bad situations that they had uh, not much of a uh, possibility of succeeding at. Um, but there's all that, all of us, have this human capacity. And what I saw from my experience there was this incredible drive of this human capacity within you know, Even for the, some of those men who were not coming home um, anytime soon, there's still this idea that they can contribute somehow. I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's, it's a yeah. much larger percent than we actually give credit for. And so coming out of that experience, it really stuck with me. And I was having this internal struggle about, hey, should I jump back to the corporate world? I'm gonna show them. I'm going to prove it to them. And I'm like, well, who's them? You know, yeah. Them is me, right? There's nobody. I was just trying to prove it to myself that I could still go back and be an executive somewhere. And fortunately, I, I, I was able to kind of meditate or get, crown myself through that and just started volunteering. I first started uh, volunteering at the local VA hospital here outside of Philadelphia um, and worked in the PTSD unit and had uh, really connected with those men who've had just 
awful experience and also just provide some gratitude for how fortunate I am yeah. to have things. And then um, uh, word got out and I, uh, someone in a um, uh, inner city uh, inpatient recovery center reached out. And so I did their volunteering and had um, really good success studying up programs there. And um, uh, my first yoga instructor was very good friends and she started teaching at a women's shelter and some other places. And then we just started coming back saying, you know, this is bigger than us. There needs to be some type of organization or community form so we can serve this population. Um, and, um, and that's what we did. So that was, I got out in 2012, did the volunteer work, trying to figure out my life a bit. In 2013, we just started taking off. And then fast forward, you know, to the end of last year, Gosh, we were we taught over thirty five hundred classes. We had wow. uh, what was it eighteen thousand participants in our programs. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, now we're struggling because of COVID, um, and that's the sad part of all this because we don't have access anymore to the men we were and women we were teaching uh, because of COVID. I mean, that's a, that's another whole discussion that is really just cruel and unusual punishment. What's happening now in prisons, but. Um, we're slowly getting back into the recovery centers and we're starting to do some online work and we're talking with some of the prisons to be able to, to do some um, taped programming that they could pre-screen and maybe get on, into their uh, TV system, if you will. So, uh, yeah. I've found and seen with everyone I've talked to about this whole COVID situation has been, you know, it's, it's certainly a, a test of our ability to work through adversity. It's an adding another layer sometimes a very extreme layer of adversity and i think that you know like you're talking about there you're just all you can do is find solutions that work within the current system so 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 the question yeah that's a great point craig here's my perspective on that so when when you are in that situation Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be prison but any sort of traumatic situation but for me it happened to be prison things turned into black and white for me meaning that i had a choice every single day the choice is, can I make this a good day or am I going to let the system get to me? Am I going to become institutionalized and just kind of sit around and watch television all day? Um, and it's a conscious decision and it has to be made every day. Yeah. In fact, I, I talk about it in the book a bit, but I ended up, I'm not a big mantra guy at all. I'm a very practical yogi, if you will. But I think mantras can be very important. Um, and I, before I was incarcerated, and I went, when I knew I might get prison time, I came up with a, a mantra, joy, surrender, true self. These three simple words or four words, joy, surrender, true self. And as I was going through all this experience, uh, I kept reminding myself, finding joy in the moment, no matter where I was. Even when I was in the courtroom and the judge was beating the hell out of me, you know, what a terrible person I was. And I'm like, that's not me, but that's what he believes, you know. Um, Surrender that, look, I'm going to prison uh, or I'm now in prison. I can't do anything about it. Of course, I don't want to be there. Right. But I'm, I can't be bitter about that because mm-hmm. that it only makes it only hurts yourself. And then be my true self. While even while being incarcerated, I'm still not going to just put up this facade. I'm not going to do anything that's going to put myself in harm's way. But but try to be myself. And what I saw for most of the men um, that same sort of thought process that that they're trying to make the best of that situation because it's a conscious decision. What happens in my my observation when I was released, things no longer become black and white. They become this gray. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, look, look, we might be in a job that we don't really like, but it pays the bills. I need to pay my rent or I've got 
kids. I've got to support my kids. So you take that job and you do it. And, and, it's, and it's kind of not living a full life. But I'm not saying it's the wrong decision, but it's just you, you can kind of guide through. Or you could be in a relationship that the relationship is, is okay. It's maybe not as fulfilling as you, as you might like it to be. But I've got too many other issues in my life right now. I'm not going to worry about that. So we kind of just, you know, uh, guide, glide by all that. And my perspective is that if we can take this idea of, of making things black and white, then it can give us clarity to say, well, I, it's not acceptable to me to be in a relationship that's not really a loving relationship. I need to do something about that. I need to work with my partner to get counseling. Or we're going to work on this. Or maybe this is not serving either of us. And it's time for us to make that change, as painful as that change can be. Um, and so a lot of what I preach is about trying to see things in this black and white so we can we can take action that's going to serve us in the long term. It might may, may be painful to get through that, um, but in the long term, it's going to get you to a point where there's personal growth and you feel like, yep, this is kind of, I'm, I'm going back to my true identity. And we do that a lot with the people we work with. So that's, I think that's a, for me, that's advice we all can use, but right. particularly those who are in uh, difficult circumstances, you know, not to, not to define where you are with who you are. They're two separate things, right? I, when I was incarcerated, yeah, I was an inmate. I was, I, was, I was incarcerated, but I never considered myself an inmate. I always thought myself, I'm Mike who happens to be incarcerated. That's a big difference. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm sure you've seen it in your recovery programs, yep. you know, that I'm a person in recovery. I'm not an addict. You're, you are you. You're Greg, mm -hmm. but you are in recovery. Yeah. And I think that message is, to me, is a universal message that very powerful if anybody dealing with trauma but i think if we can take it like when we're in the outside world it can also help guide us because um it's it's where you are doesn't define who you are your actions define who you are and you have control over that in spite of what other people might do to try to influence your actions ultimately you you can control that yeah and you can rec you definitely can control your your response to your environment you can't exactly. control your environment most of the time, a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a quick example that that there was a fella um, at, at the VA hospital and he had a really difficult time with PTSD. He happened to be my student for almost a year. He finally got a pass to leave the hospital to go see his family. And he's at the um, bus stop. And um, he said, you know, Mike, I almost got into it. Somebody. I almost got in a fight. This guy was in my face, my face. And but he's he was standing up and he realized he's standing in a mountain pose for those who practice yoga. It's a simple pose. You're standing up tall, almost like at attention, but you're relaxed, your shoulder blades are back and you breathe. And when you're in this, this mountain pose and he said, you know, I realized for that one millimeter of a second that I mean, I'm not a, I'm not here. I'm here. I'm in mountain pose. Oh, I can control that situation by just breathing. And let it go. And he did. And he said it. it the whole thing dissipated. He got on the bus, went home. He has a very difficult situation at home. Same thing happened at home. He said, I just breathed, took it in, took it out, and I let that moment pass. And I went on and had a really wonderful visit with my family. So I'm like, yes, that's that's what this is all about. It's not about making yourself into a pretzel. It's about taking this tool <laughs> of understanding the mind-body relationship yep. that that you can you can control your nervous system a bit so that you don't ha always have to go into fight or flight mode. There's ways and you can hopefully use uh, these mindfulness techniques to uh, evaluate very quickly if this is really 
a, a situation I need to get out of, or is this something that I can just kind of breathe through and let, let that discomfort pass? And yeah. that's a big part of what we try to teach through all our programs. Well, that's so important. And it relates, obviously, to people that are in, in specifically traumatic experiences or, or places in life in a pretty big way. That breathing thing, like you're, you're pointing to, is that certain breathing rhythms push your body into the, the rest mode rather than being in the fight or flight mode, like you mentioned. And then you can feel a lot of people, if you're not aware of it, especially if you you live and experience a traumatic environment a lot, you're in fight or flight mode constantly, which is not healthy for you. Um, obviously, that serves a purpose in, in certain circumstances where it's actually needed, but our bodies overreact a lot um, or react appropriately. And there's just that is it's still not helpful uh, in that certain circumstance. Yeah. And we call it a practice because uh, just like if, if you don't work it, then you're you're immediately going to go back to that fight or flight, whether it's yeah. real or imagined. Yeah. But if we can practice these techniques about breathing about being present, about maybe connecting, you know, mindful movement together, as we call it, mm-hmm. then, um, then that be starts to become your default. So then when as events occur, you have more uh, wherewithal to evaluate, is this real or is this something that's perceived or is this something that's just uncomfortable? Right. Um, and make that decision. So it's like a muscle in the sense that the more you work it, the more it's going to be available when you need it. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. So Let's touch real quick on how I'd like to shift over to, to your other work where you're working with leaders and how someone can be a responsible leader. You mentioned something before we started recording. You said someone, you, you focus on helping people become responsible leaders, not necessarily, uh, and that does not necessarily align with being an effective leader or an effective leader can be an effective leader without being a responsible leader, I think is exactly. what you're getting at. Yeah, exactly correct. Exactly. Hopefully a responsible leader is also an effective one. But so, yeah. So, look, here, here's how I came to this. I was charged legally, criminally yeah. with being a with, I guess, not being a responsible corporate officer. That's a misdemeanor. And I, I it's always stuck with me because I've always tried to be responsible. But um, in this case, it was criminal. But I started thinking about um, what it means to be a responsible, you know, really be a responsible leader. And so right now, the way our system works is that if you are effective, you know, you're productive, you get more profits, you do this and that, you are a big leader. Um, but, but uh, you know, when we, when we talk about the corporate world, we talk about responsibility. Generally, the textbooks always talk about, well, the you know, first responsibility is to the shareholders. Okay, I mean, we're a capitalistic society, so the shareholders, you know, they own the company, so there's a responsibility there. But I think what we have to do um, and what this, I think society is showing us right now is we need to do, have to do, is to expand that, to say, look, we are responsible because we're in a leadership position. And I would argue we are privileged to be in a leadership position. Um, and then that, with that leadership comes a responsibility to think more just about the bottom line. Of course, the bottom line is important, especially now where businesses are really hurting with COVID. Right. They have to reconcile, do I keep my doors open and how do I deal with you know all the other stuff going on? We have to find a way to, with our, our languaging and our approach to, to try to balance both. So being a responsible leader means being aware that, look, we are in this privileged position, that those, there are many around us who are underprivileged and don't have a voice. And, and we need to be able to provide vehicles for that voice to be heard. Um, and, and, and look, it's not only being responsible to your company, it's being responsible to your employees. 
um, real, real quick. There's ways, like I had to shut down a factory one time. Mm -hmm. um, I dreaded it. But rather than mailing it in, I had no choice. Really, I had no choice. Right. But instead of just mailing it in, sending someone from HR to shut it down, I flew down myself, met with every employee. It was brutal. But I treated them as human beings. I gave them the best financial package I possibly could. And um, I tried to look, you know, treat them as human beings, not as a number in a box. That's one side thing. But other areas, your employees, it's not, it's your family. Are you, are you responsible to your family? And then you just expand that. Are we responsible to your community and to society? And we look, there's major things going on right now. We know that as far as uh, culturally racism in the company, in the company, in the uh, country, um, climate change, all these issues. Now we can't solve them all in our little positions here managing it. But we can have a voice, we can have a perspective on that, and we can allow this conversation to occur in, in a way that allows people to speak freely and affect change and let other leaders come up with new ideas that we maybe not, haven't thought about. Yeah, there's a really good, um, I forget what it was, right whenever COVID first happened, obviously a lot of people were laying people off and it was a necessity and there was one CEO that had written a letter to every single person and it was really well written and it was basically like look like I really don't want to do this but here's exactly why here's exactly what we're going to do for you they started a program in their company like an alumni program so anyone that has ever worked for that company then has access to this alumni program or they'll help them with networking and finding jobs post-job training like all of this stuff and it's like that's the kind of stuff you love to see and at, you know as someone who's been an employee for most of my adult life I'm a, a business owner now but that's the kind of stuff you pay attention to when you're going from one position to another and when you leave a company and so this goes back to like kind of how it is a little bit self-serving as well is that if if I leave a company and it was a horrible situation the way that they le left me I'm going to tell everybody about that and those companies then have a lot of trouble hiring people I used to work for a company like that uh, and they still act like that they're still you know are push the wages down as low as they can overwork everyone don't listen to any of the employee concerns like all of these things and they're just churning out as much profit as they possibly can everybody that leaves there tells everyone they know it's a very small pool it's a technical position so it's a very mm -hmm. small pool of potential employees and then you know the company i actually went back and worked for that company briefly because i just desperately needed some work and they're just they can't hire any people because all of the people, they basically churned through everyone they possibly could, and then everyone else has been warned not to work for them. Vice versa, you have other companies that are great to work for. I had a different company that I worked for that I tell everybody that's within their area, go work for these people if you can, because they're going to take care of you. And even if they have to let you go at some point, they're going to do it in a, in a human way. And that matters. Yeah. Well, that's the hard part. I mean, that transition from being an employee to an owner, you're seeing it now, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. That it, it, you have so many things on your to-do list and significant problems that sometimes th this topic gets left off your list because it's it's hard sometimes to relate to it because, no, I've got I've to get this. i got to get that. i got to get this done. Oh, I mean, I've got to be, like, responsible for other stuff, too, and, and providing a workplace environment. It, it sometimes doesn't make the list. And that's part of this idea of recognizing that it's a privilege being an executive mm -hmm. and, and if we look at it that way we can start addressing some of the topics you just mentioned about that's part of your responsibility it's, it's not like a something that's nice to do you have to do this <laughs> right yeah, yeah absolutely okay so thank you so much Mike I really appreciate the conversation we had and I think that you're doing a lot of really amazing work on both those fronts and I hope that you could get to continue to do that and 
um, you know, as myself and a lot of listeners, a good portion of the listeners are in recovery as well. So um, I think that your uh, Yoga for Recovery book that you wrote and uh, even just your going home, your whole story kind of is helpful. It's relatable and you're working with that population with the Transformation Yoga Project, which I hope things uh, start to come back around now that things are starting to open back up. Yeah. where can people, uh, I will link stuff down in the description sure. also, anything he mentions here, look down in the show notes for, uh, where can people find more of this information to dive a little deeper if they want to? So, so more about the yoga piece, um, quite simply, yeah. there's a ton of information on our website. It's simply the tran- it, transformationyogaproject.org. So transformationyogaproject.org. Um, lots of articles, there's research papers in there. There's a link to the book. Um, the Yoga for Recovery book. So there's a ton of information there. From the non-yoga side of things, my other life, if you will, yes. um, just go to mdhuggins.com, mdhuggins.com, and there's lots of information there about community work, but also work with executives, and there's links to the book, there's videos, all kinds of stuff there. Um, and certainly reach out to me, um, Facebook, it's, uh, I think it's MD Huggins uh, Facebook. I love to talk to people, reach out. I'm very accessible. So if anybody uh, emails me, it's Mike at uh, TransformationYogaProject.com. I'll get back to you right away. We can start a conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us and sharing your insights, Mike. Hey, thank you so much, Craig, for having me. Appreciate it.